the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Today we're going to talk with Liz Diddy. She is the author of God's Many Voices, Learning to Listen, Expectant to Hear. And the book is about how God reveals himself to us in uh, using various means to communicate, all consistent with his word, if in fact it's his voice. In the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Peter Sprigg. He is the Family Research Council Senior Fellow. We're going to talk about the U.S. Supreme Court's recent decision in favor of the free speech rights of California's pro-life pregnancy care centers in NIFLA versus Becerra, and how it could possibly impact sexual orientation change therapy prohibitions in the state of California and elsewhere. Another uh, free speech issue the Supreme Court may at some point um, have the opportunity to address. We're also going to talk with Patrina Mosley. She's the Family Research Council's Director of Life, Culture and Women's Advocacy. She's written a paper on women and pornography and while those two things don't typically go together and I would caution that if you have young uh, listeners at 530 we're going to be talking with her about that in an appropriate way but certainly not a appropriate for younger listeners. Um, We'll talk with her about the challenge and also offer some resources for those who struggle. You might be surprised to learn how many women, even those uh, following Christ, are struggling in this area. So that's our lineup for today. In some of the developing news stories, former FBI attorney Lisa Page did not testify on Capitol Hill as scheduled today. That outraged Republican lawmakers. At NATO, the uh, summit, President Trump slammed an inappropriate Germany-Russia deal, pressing allies to bolster their defense spending, risking already strained relations, but making the point that they need to uh, carry their fair share. Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh met with Republican leaders on Capitol Hill uh, as uh, Democrats focused on uh, his past support for shielding sitting presidents from prosecution in response to uh, and following the uh, Clinton impeachment. Uh, The Trump administration, by the way, that was in 2000, was it 2009 that he wrote about that? Anyway, the Trump administration is proposing additional tariffs on $200 billion in Chinese import uh, products, and illegal immigrant families have to be reunited faster, even if it means skipping DNA testing for many children, according to a federal judge telling the Trump administration. Now, the concern in that area is whether or not the, the alleged adults who are claiming to be the parents are, in fact, biological parents. Sex trafficking is the, uh, the concern. Well, is um, FBI lovebird hiding something? Lee, we're talking about Lisa Page. Well, she did not appear for a private interview with the House, two House committees, despite their subpoenaing her uh, attorney. In a statement, uh, Amy Jeffress uh, said her client did not have enough time to prepare and had asked the House Judiciary and Oversight Government Reform Committees to schedule another date. In response, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Bob Goodlot said it appears that Lisa Page has something to hide. She has known for months that the House Judiciary Committee has sought her testimony as part of our joint investigation with the Oversight Committee into discussions made by the Justice Department in 2016, and decisions rather, and she has no excuse for her failure to appear, end quote. Well, other GOP members of the Judiciary Committee slammed her refusal to appear, with Ron DeSantis of Florida calling it pathetic, and Jim Jordan of Ohio saying she was once again showing the double standard. 
Well, President Trump is in Brussels for the uh, two-day NATO summit where tension is expected to rise in part over military spending, tariffs, and the potential trade war between the European Union and the U.S. President Trump pressed NATO allies to bolster their defense spending as he met with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, Stoltenberg rather, at the start of the summit. He immediately voiced his displeasure over NATO's unfair arrangement with the U.S. in military spending. The U.S. Uh, carries about two-thirds of that to financial burden. The president also took issue with the U.S. protecting Germany when the European nation is making energy deals with Russia, an arrangement he said is not in the U.S.'s interest. We're supposed to protect you against Russia, and yet you make this deal with Russia. You tell me how appropriate is that? Now, NATO, of course, uh, began to protect Europe uh, as sort of bolster Europe against uh, Russia. Trump's day uh, will include a welcome ceremony, a meeting with the uh, North Atlantic Council, and a working dinner with some of the same leaders he berated over trade during his last World Leader Summit in Canada last month. Of course, that has now come and gone. President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, met with Republican leaders on Capitol Hill today as uh, critical swing vote senators promised to withhold judgment on his nomination until they could vet his lengthy record. Imagine that, actually vetting his record. Kavanaugh's meeting meeting came as Democrats zeroed in on a decades-old call to shield presidents from criminal investigation. In fact, what he called for was for Congress to take action and not to suggest that judges should do so. He tackled the issue in a 2009 article in the Minnesota Law Review. And the U.S. is pursuing a new set of tariffs that would hit $200 billion in Chinese goods, according to senior administration officials. In a list published late yesterday, the U.S. Trade Representative said the 10% tariffs would target a variety of products imported from China, including clothing, baseball, gloves, uh, bicycles, refrigerators, and seafood. Additional U.S. tariffs, which will go through a two-month approval process, including a public hearing, come after China retaliated with a tit-for-tat trade skirmish last week. China slammed the proposed tariff hikes as totally unacceptable and vowed to protect its core interests. There's also an effort in Congress to try to prevent the president from making and setting such tariffs without uh, Congress being involved, approving or some sort of configuration. Well, the Trump administration has to expedite efforts to reunite illegal immigrant families who remain separated despite the court-ordered deadline Tuesday for action, including by skipping DNA tests for many children, according to a federal judge yesterday. Government lawyers had argued that all parents and children should be tested. Their reasoning, DNA testing is faster than authenticating documents and protects children, especially the youngest, from being handed to people who may or may not be their biological parents. But U.S. District Judge Dana Sabra, siding with with the American Civil Liberties Union said DNA tests, testing needed to be done only when parentage couldn't be proven through birth certificates or other ways, or when the lack of a DNA test would prolong family separation. Last month, Sabra set Tuesday as the deadline for the Trump administration to reunite children under five with their families. He also set the 26th of this month as the deadline to reunite nearly 3,000 children over the age of five. And on this day in 1960, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee is published, uh, first published by J.B. Lippincott and Company. In 1859 on this day, Big Ben, the great bell inside the famous London clock tower, chimes for the first time. The president's there. By the way, 1804, Vice President Aaron Burr mortally wounds former Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton during a pistol duel in Weehawken, New Jersey. Hamilton died the next day. 
Well, President Trump hadn't even met with the NATO allies when he, uh, his straight talk about Germany being a captive of Russia produced indignation, if not outrage, among the diplomatic set and the media elite. Um, at a breakfast meeting in Belgium with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, the president thumped Germany for buying oil and gas from Russia, the country that NATO was formed to protect against. You're just making Russia richer, Trump said. I think trade is wonderful. I think energy is a whole different story. Well, Trump noted that countries like Poland refuse to buy Russian energy because they don't want to be captive to Russia. But Germany, as far as I'm concerned, the president went on to say, is captive to Russia because it's getting so much of its energy from Russia. So we're supposed to protect Germany, but they're getting their energy from Russia. Explain that, the president said. Well, the press was then escorted from the room, so we don't know what went on from there. The president went to the NATO meeting complaining about NATO members' failure to pay their fair share for their defense. He began his criticism of the German-Russia energy deal by telling Stoltenberg, I think it's sad when Germany makes a massive oil and gas deal with Russia where you're supposed to be guarding against Russia and Germany goes out and pays billions and billions a year. Uh, So you're protecting Germany. We're protecting France. We're protecting all of these countries. And then numerous of the countries go out and make a pipeline deal with Russia where they're paying billions of dollars into the coffers. Well, it goes on from there. And uh, again, he closes that uh, series of arguments. So you think that's appropriate. Well, it wasn't a particularly friendly meeting, but the president did speak frankly on behalf of the American people, making the point that taxpayers are supporting the defense interests of these nations who need to step up and uh, make the commitment, live up to the commitment that they've made in terms of the amount of GDP they would uh, spend on their own defense. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back. Also, a reminder, Liz Diddy will be my guest at the bottom of the hour. Her book is titled God's Many Voices, Learning to Listen, Expectant to Hear. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Again, we're looking forward to a conversation with Liz Diddy, God's Many Voices, Learning to Listen, Expectant to hear. She has a rather interesting background, having been raised in a cult, uh, stepped away from that and her family. And uh, for over a decade of freedom, um, uh, later she uh, is involved in ministry. We'll tell you more of her story when she joins us. Well, NATO leaders did pledge their unwavering commitment to boost defense spending on uh, Wednesday, following stern words from the president criticizing They're spending too little. The U.S. and European allies signed a declaration stating they are committed to improving the balance of sharing the costs and responsibilities of alliance membership. Now, that's not the first time it's happened. And the president made the point that 2024 is not soon enough to fulfill those promises. That's what typically happens. The date is at some distance and then. Uh, When the time comes, there's a reason why that uh, goal has not been met. But since the election, Trump has criticized NATO countries for not paying their fair share, rather, while suggesting he would only come to the uh, defense of NATO nations that fulfill their financial obligations. He also pressed the countries to fulfill their goal of spending 2% of their gross domestic product, or GDP, on defense by 2024. Uh, NATO estimates that 15 members, or just over half, will meet that benchmark based on current trends. As NATO vows to pursue those targets that Trump is seeking even more, suggesting that perhaps 4% GDP would be more appropriate. The president, uh, I mean, the United States is currently paying something like 3.5% of our GDP now. 
Well, Mexican President-elect Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador uh, plans to establish a distinct border police force to combat illegal immigration as well as drug and weapon smuggling from Central America. His future chief of public security, Alfonso Durazo, told Bloomberg in an interview published uh, on Monday, we're going to create a border police force that will be highly specialized, he said in an interview, they need to apply the law. Huh. The newfound emphasis on curtailing illegal immigration comes with President Trump now years long public pressure campaign on Mexican officials to assume some degree of responsibility for stemming the tide of Central American immigrants passing through their country on their way to the United States in recent years. Durazo said the new border police force will be accompanied by a broader effort to address the socioeconomic issues that have prompted the surge in migration from Central America. The future public security chief argued that Mexico has failed to curtail illegal immigration due to an overemphasis on enforcement and an underemphasis on the humanitarian side of the problem. The legitimate use of force by the state is a resource, he said, but it shouldn't be the first resource. It should be the last one. Well, in order to fight corruption, uh, which Durazo said facilitates human trafficking and drug smuggling, the new administration plans to significantly increase salaries and benefits for law enforcement officials. Lopez Abrador, who will uh, take office December 1st, is scheduled to meet with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on Friday, and they're expected to discuss immigration at that time. So there you have it. Well, as the uh, Supreme Court nominee is making his way on Capitol Hill, first with the uh, Republicans and then with the uh, opponents on the Democrat side, Kavanaugh's nomination has the left in something of a pa- uh, panic. David Harsony writes uh, with the Federalists, one of the organizations that had uh, pushed put his name forward along with 25 others, says it seems to me that with another originalist judge, we inch closer to a time when the majority of the left will simply dismiss the court as an antiquated impediment to progress. We already see this happening, not only from progressives, but from supposed moderates. It's why flip-flopping partisans like Ezra Klein are now lamenting the anti-democratic position of the court. By anti-democratic, he doesn't mean the court had legalized abortion or gay marriage without the consent of states, but rather that it has recently stopped the federal government from compelling individuals to act in ways he and many others approve of. Again, from the Federalist, Kevin Williamson, writing for the Weekly Standard, said this. The left is in a panic. Judge Kavanaugh, who currently serves on the D.C. Court of Appeals, is a Catholic and a member of the Federalist Society, where he led the religious liberties practice group. His religious convictions surely will come under scrutiny. The Democratic Party may have left the white robes, burning crosses and pointy hats behind, but it has kept the ancestral anti-Catholic bigotry. If only because Democrats know that their basic coalition is held together mainly by the promise of government checks and a keen interest in securing sexual convenience through the surgical dismemberment of unborn children. And so it continues. Well, Democrats are demanding access and time to dig into the vast cache of documents that Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh compiled during his years in the the George W. Bush White House. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said today, or rather yesterday, Schumer's um, uh, marker indicates that Democrats who have scant procedural power to slow the nomination are gearing up for a battle over Kavanaugh's written communications that could delay a final confirmation vote. Keeping in mind that when he was appointed to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, they took three years to finally uh, uh, confirm him. Uh, that was, uh, by the way, in uh, Politico. Schumer is testing the Trump-picked Kavanaugh to protect himself from Mueller argument. It doesn't really hold up if you look at the context of the statements made by 
uh, Judge Kavanaugh at that time. But nonetheless, it's being floated. And Business Insiders has yanked the opinion piece of a conservative after complaints from leftist employees. Uh, Bethany Mandel explains a group of offended employees are now determining what posts can stay on the website after they've been published. And that's in the Business Insider. And by the way, NFL Union has sued the NFL over anthem uh, their anthem policy, claiming it infringes on players' rights. If they're successful, I suppose you and I, James, could do virtually anything we please on our employer's time, that they would uh, be stripped of their ability to simply say, this is uh, not something I want you to do on company time. So we'll see what uh, what happens there. Meanwhile, YouTube is working with news organizations to deem authoritative and quality news sources in an effort to combat fake news and conspiracy theories. We're announcing steps we're taking with the GNI, Google News Initiative, to support the future of news and online video and produce features we've been working on to improve the news experience on YouTube. The company executives announced on Monday. So YouTube is going to determine what's uh, what's true and what's false for you. Owned by Google, YouTube is uh, committing $25 million to the cause in three areas. Paying experts to review the news. I'm sure that will be a broad ideological spectrum of experts. Probably not. Donating money for innovation and financially supporting news outlets in, it considers credible and in need of monetary support. So it will determine what is credible and will financially support those that make the cut. YouTube will also change its format to fit the new format. Sounds redundant, but you get the point, which will show approved videos at the top of uh, search results for news-related searches and also includes a breaking news section of YouTube-approved videos on the homepage. The company is set to debut the new format in the coming weeks, all approved by YouTube. Journalists often write articles first to break the news rather than produce videos, the company's executive wrote. That's why in the coming weeks in the United States, uh, we will start providing a short preview of news articles and search results on your YouTube that link to the full article during the initial hours of a major news event, along with a reminder that breaking and developing news can rapidly change. And all of this uh, will be handled by YouTube. You won't have to try to figure out for yourself what's true and false. They will have a panel to do that for you. What a relief. And as the Supreme Court strikes blows against compelled speech and restrictions on free speech, California is doing its best to resist. One of the latest legislative proposals from California aims to make government the arbiter of truth. So YouTube on on the Internet, the government everywhere else. Uh, Senate Bill 1424 would create an advisory group on fake news to work with social media companies to weed out what the government deems incorrect information on the Internet. This legislation, if passed, would require California Attorney General, California's Attorney General to create the group consisting of social media providers, civil liberties advocates and First Amendment scholars to study and mitigate the problem of spreading, spreading false information. Now, I'm certain that will not include information that we disagree with. It may be credible, but we don't like it. Therefore, it doesn't make the cut. I'm sure that will never happen. According to CBS Sacramento, even the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a left-leaning nonprofit civil liberties organization, called the legislation flawed and misguided. This bill mirrors the trend in Europe, where government commissions to police speech and the news are becoming common. And this is what we can expect here in the days ahead. We're already seeing with California and YouTube it beginning, and for that matter, Facebook and elsewhere. California has been emboldened by the um, strident progress 
progressive legislature is trying to bring these Orwellian fake news panels to the United States. Americans should leave this trend to the other side of the Atlantic. The founding fathers were um, uh, well aware of both the strengths and the limitations of the press. And while fake, misleading and dishonest news was as common in their day as in ours, they understood that containing speech through governmental forces was a dangerous proposition. In fact, Thomas Jefferson wrote in a letter, It is so difficult to draw a clear line of separation between the abuse and the wholesome use of the press that as yet we have found it better to trust the public judgment rather than the magistrate with the discrimination between truth and falsehood. And hitherto, the public judgment has performed that office with wonderful correctness. Huh, something to consider. Truth is an elusive thing, but Jefferson and most of the founders concluded that the arbiter of this truth was best left in the hands of the people. And because these founders knew that the people could also be wrong in their judgment, they created um, mediating institutions, diffusing power among the branches of government and the states and the courts, to name a few, to check the power of pure democracy as well. Because we don't live in a democracy, we live in a constitutional republic. Creating a government panel with the power to determine what news is real or fake flies in the face of what the founders attempted to create for America and almost certainly will run afoul of the First Amendment. Now, of course, California is getting used to these assaults on the First Amendment freedom, so it won't be any big uh, news story there. Justice, uh, as Justice Anthony Kennedy said in one of his uh, last Supreme Court opinions before retirement, the California legislature's self-congratulation about being forward-thinking in its official history runs counter to the fact that it has become hostile to the timeliness um, uh, the timeless idea of free speech. He said it isn't forward thinking to be an in, an instrument for fostering public adherence to an ideological point of view uh, they find unacceptable. And he was referring to a case in which California's government would force pro-life pregnancy centers to advertise low cost abortions. We talked um, a little bit about that with um, Peter Sprigg, and you'll hear that uh, later in the program. In any event, California is uh, jumping on the bandwagon and they're going to manage uh, truth and falsehood for us. May it never be. 31 minutes after four o'clock. Up next, we'll talk with Liz Diddy. Her book is titled God's Many Voices, Learning to Listen, Expectant to Hear. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 37 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest encourages her readers to break free from false teaching to listen to the Savior's words. But the challenge for many of us is to listen for his voice and recognize it amidst the distractions of our busy world. Well, in her debut book, God's Many Voices, Learning to Listen, Expectant to Hear, Liz Diddy uses personal, relatable examples and uh, biblical teaching to guide readers into hearing God's many voices in their lives, whether through scripture, prayer, community, interpretations, uh, waiting for uh, or silence. God is speaking and we need but listen. Liz Diddy is a speaker, writer, podcast host and volunteer jail chaplain. Her upbringing is uh, in a fundamentalist cult where her father served as one of the elders and church planters, taught her that uh, women should be, well, submissive and silent. At the age of 23, she left the church and her family. Over a decade of freedom later, her first goal in ministry is to encourage others who have heard the wrong story about God uh, to take their questions and hurts straight to him. She lives with her husband, Mike, and their two children in San Jose, California, where she teaches regularly at the multiple campuses of Westgate Church. Liz Diddy, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited to get the chance to chat with you, Georgine. Well, let's talk about the title of your book. It's God's Many Voices. Um, let's talk about what that means uh, so that people are not confused by the prospect that 
um, that might be confusing. God's many voices. What do you mean by that? Right. One God, many voices. So in my work as a spiritual director and as a jail chaplain, I have had so many conversations with people who have wanted to hear God's voice, but they just don't think that he talks to them. And when I've asked them, well, what are you waiting for? What does God's voice sound like? Or what do you think it's going to sound like? Some of them don't know, or some of them think that it's going to be some sort of cloud parting, incredibly audible moment of clarity or a heightened emotional um, sensation of goosebumps all over from head to toe. And although sometimes God's voice does hit us those ways, that's not the only way that God talks to us. Mm -hmm. And so if we're not learning to listen for God's many different ways that he communicates with us, then we might miss a lot of what he has to say. Now, you had a very interesting upbringing that really resulted in your pressing in to hear from from God rather than being taught in a in a way that was misleading in terms of your background um, you tell us a little bit about your upbringing and the effect that that had at least during that season on your relationship with God and your understanding of him yeah so as you mentioned in your introduction, I grew up in a fundamentalist church that basically functioned like a cult. Um, my dad was one of the elders and um, was very close to sort of the leader of, of the group, which was called the Assembly. Uh, it's kind of a lot to go into, but um, to, to give a high-level picture, um, the, there was a lot of emphasis on um, the authority structure of the church and basically the leader's really being the shepherds who God had entrusted the flock of the church to, which meant that uh, everything that we did, um, every decision that we made, we were really accountable to the elders. And um, if we wanted to know what uh, we should do in a relationship, what we should do for a career, where we should go to school, who we should marry, um, the elders prayed for us and basically told us all of the decisions that we should make with the authority of God. Uh, In addition, um, with this strict uh, authority structure and hierarchy, um, there was also a very strong emphasis on female submission. So all women wore um, veils or head coverings based on um, their interpretation of 1 Corinthians 11 and were silent during all of the gatherings of the church. So um, growing up in this environment, uh, I didn't have much of a voice. In fact, I had almost zero voice when the church got together. Um, however, there was, uh, you know, the, the, the group of people were very devout. And I would say there was a lot of emphasis on the scripture, scripture reading and memorization. And Years later, even though I had to break through and sort of relearn a lot of the interpretations of some of the passages that I thought I knew so well, I find that that um, that grounding and that rootedness has somehow served me well. Um, the The biggest thing for me, and I know that most people have not had nearly such an experience with the church. Um, or anything is radical. But one of the things that it taught me was that I needed to ask somebody who knew more about God than I did what God wanted for my life and what God had to say to me. 
And it's funny that even after leaving the cult, I was still looking for good teachers or good churches to tell me what God wanted for me or what God um, had for my life. And um, one of the things, you know, fortunately, I stumbled into some very good teachers um, who didn't tell me what God wanted for me. They pointed me straight towards Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. And that's what good teachers and good churches do. Um, but I know that, you know, even now, even for those of us who didn't grow up in a super dysfunctional church, it's really easy to um, depend on really good, healthy teachers to tell us what God is like or what he wants for our life. And um, if we do that, we are just missing out on the conversation of our lives that we can have directly with God. Mm. Now, you begin your book with a passage from Psalm 29. How does that help drive home your message about hearing God's voice? Yeah, so God's um, God's voice in Psalm 29, um, David talks about many different tones of God's voice, and most of them are sort of terrifying. Uh, he talks about thunder and lightning and breaking trees in half, um, but he talks about it as um, crying, uh, or as our response, as crying glory in response to these many voices of God. Um, this reminder that God doesn't just whisper into our lives, God speaks powerfully. And we don't have to be scared about this. The whole promise is, fear not, I am with you. In fact, at the end of Psalms 29, it says that the Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people and he blesses his people with peace. And this idea that God's voice in our life isn't just um, something that we turn to when we need to make a decision or when we want to feel better about ourselves. It is the unharnessed voice of the king of the universe. But we don't have to be afraid because that powerful voice, it says in Psalm 29, 11, it gives us strength and it gives us peace. Mm, amen. What role does, uh, does God's word play in helping to clarify when God speaks and what he is saying. Yeah, I think as we, as we, you know, learn to recognize God's voice, we have to understand who he is um, and the kinds of things that he says. And the Bible is the permanent address, as Dallas Willard would say, of God's words. Um, and then we see in John 1, in addition, that Jesus is the word. Um, it says that, you know, nobody saw God or knew what he was like, but we've seen Jesus, who is God. And so we, we can understand what God is like. And so when we go to the Bible, specifically to the Gospels and the words and teachings of Jesus, we can start to understand what God is like, the kinds of things that he has to say to us and develop a recognition, a familiarity, and an understanding of God's voice so that we can test what we think that we're starting to hear him say in our life against the truth that we know about who he is. We're talking this afternoon with Liz Diddy. She is the author of God's Many Voices, Learning to Listen, Expectant to Hear. We'll continue that conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Liz Diddy, her first book, God's Many Voices, Learning to Listen, Expectant to Hear. Uh, The truth is many of us want to hear God's voice, but we're not quite sure how to go about it. And uh, the book really helps us to think through what the scriptures have to say and to recognize God's voice when he is speaking to us. Now, let me ask you, um, uh, you uh, say that um, lots of people aren't able to recognize God's voice, but learning to recognize what we may already be hearing is the challenge. Where do we start in this effort to, to hear God as he speaks? Yeah, our minds are cluttered with voices. Um, there, it, it's a chattering place, and it can be hard to sort out what thoughts that we have are from ourselves and what are from God when we notice things, coincidences or interruptions or certain things that we might wonder, is this an open door? Um, it can be hard to discern whether or not it's truly the voice of God that's speaking to us. The, the more that we listen, the more that we recognize God's voice, we become more familiar with it. And um, as the, um, the scripture, as we were talking about earlier, helps us to understand who God is and the kinds of things that he says so that we can test the things in our life against that. In addition to the scripture being our anchor, God has built us into this beautiful community called the church, where we all get to speak his words to one another and also test his words together. Now, as you know, um, many people struggle to hear God's voice in their daily lives. Uh, But when we find ourselves in hardship or frustration, then we are more poised to try to listen and discern Um, What would you most like to tell people about learning to hear God's voice during those difficult and challenging times? Yeah, one of my favorite stories about hearing God's voice is actually Elijah in um, 1 Kings 19. You might remember it's it's the story where um, Elijah hears God whisper to him. But the first thing before Elijah hears this whisper, he's actually at a low point in his life. He is incredibly frustrated. He, the, the plan of God is not working out anywhere near in reality what he expected it to look like. And he is feeling utterly alone and abandoned. Um, and he runs away to this cave and he wakes up there and the Lord invites him to stand in his presence and watch him walk by. I think that that same invitation is for us when we feel like we are at rock bottom, when we feel abandoned by God, when his plan in our life is not working out anywhere near what we think it should look like. We are invited also to stand in his presence and to watch him walk by. Um, And the interesting thing is God walks by. I'm talking about his many voices. There's several ways that Israel had experienced God's voice in the wilderness and and the ways that the prophets had talked about God's voice. And that was through fire, through wind, through earthquake. And in this case with Elijah, all three of those things happen, and yet none of them contain God's voice. Um, And sometimes we can go to familiar places where we expect God to speak to us, and we just aren't hearing him the way that we expect to. But instead, after all these things happen, God's unexpected voice finds Elijah 
in a whisper, right where he's at, exactly the intimacy and the closeness that he needs as he's feeling so alone and so vulnerable. And I think if we wait long enough um, in for listening for God's voice in that low point, we will find that his voice will find us, his words will find us, perhaps in an unexpected way. Hmm. In your book, uh, which is titled God's Many Voices, Learning to Listen, Expectant to Hear, uh, you write about the everyday distractions that make it difficult for us to hear God's voice. There's so much going on. We have screens that are vying for our attention of various sizes. We have activity going on. And you write about um, uh, the importance of slowing down, which is a challenge for many of us. What do you recommend uh, for those who are just so distracted that perhaps uh, God's voice isn't, uh, isn't registering? Yeah, the truth is, when I feel like God isn't speaking to me, if I'm honest, I'm not spending a whole lot of time listening for Him. Maybe a quick little chunk of time in the morning, and it's just not awe-inspiring, and so I give up. Um, The truth is that intimacy and connection is never built by showing up for each other in short periods of time with unrealistic expectations of what the depth and quality of that experience is going to be. That's not how human relationships work, and it's not how we can expect our relationship with God to work either. Um, as like In God's Many Voices, I, um, I'm hoping that it's a journey I can take with the reader, that we're not just moving towards God's voice, but we're moving towards God himself. And the real invitation is not just to listen through the noise, It's to listen as an act of relationship, to slowly, with many mistakes, learn together how to live life with God, the abundant, beautiful life of freedom and ongoing conversation that we're all invited to. In your book, you write about the realization that God breaks through our defenses so that we hear him. And specifically, you mentioned Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. It's such a dramatic encounter. Many of us wish we could have that kind of physical, dramatic encounter. Um, But why do do you offer that as an example? And um, how does this understanding come to shape how you listen for God's voice? Yeah, well... um... I know a lot of us want that encounter with, like Paul had, that audible voice, the parting of the clouds. And the truth is that sometimes we assume that that is reserved for the most holy, the most trained at listening for God's voice. Well, Paul wasn't holy at all. He was about as far from God as you can get. And that's the encounter that he had. Sometimes that encounter is a gift from God, but sometimes it's just the extent that he has to go to to get somebody's attention. I think sometimes I try to earn God's voice in my life. I think that if I read the Bible enough or I pray hard enough, that the clouds will part and Jesus is just going to stand before me and tell me what next move I should make. Um, And the truth is that that's just not what listening is like. That's not what God's voice is like. Um, Sometimes he breaks through as a complete act of grace, no matter how hard we've tried. And sometimes it is his grace that we can try slowly and faithfully to hear his voice. And he speaks to all of us, no matter who we are or what point in our faith that he finds us. He is speaking to all of us and we can all hear him. What advice would you give on how to develop the kind of um, discernment that we need so that we can confidently move forward recognizing God when he speaks? 
find a friend, <laughs> find a wise friend. Um, don't do it alone. Um, God's words are not just a gift to us. Sometimes they're a gift he gives us to give someone else. And sometimes just listening to God can be a gift that we give to one another. The things that God is saying to me right now um, may be very different than the things that he's saying to you. But if we're both honest with each other about where we think we're sensing and noticing God, we can give each other hope. I have a good friend right now who's feeling like she is just in a silent desert wilderness. Um, and it is just enduring the silence um, and, and what feels like a lack of response from God. And as I listen with her in that silence, I remember or, and I, I can understand that God sometimes speaks to us through silence, that sometimes that wilderness and that longing is something that we're invited to. And when I'm hearing God speak to me in a crazy coincidence or a beautiful scripture passage that I read that seemed to apply perfectly to something in my life, and she sees God speaking to me that way, it gives her hope for um, that, that season to come back into her life as well. So it's really important that we not only listen together for, um, for discernment, but that we listen together for hope and seasons of faith and to see who God is more, um, more largely in one another's stories. Mm, yes. Do you have a relationship at all with your family members who, uh, whom you left behind when you walked away from the cult? Yes. Um, well, unfortunately, my father passed away about 11 years ago, mm-hmm. um, and he died of brain cancer. I tell this story in the second chapter of my book. It was really difficult because um, one of the first things that the brain cancer did was impede his communication and, and change his ability. He couldn't really put full sentences together. We actually thought that he had maybe had a stroke. Um, and then we took him in for tests, and we realized it was actually a, um, a very large stage four tumor um, that was pressing up against the different parts of his brain. And so there was a lot of unresolved conversation there. Um, but one of the things that, um, you know, and I, I talk about that prayer journey also in the book yes. of, um, you know, not, not necessarily praying for my dad to be healed, but just praying for like a, a resolution to some of the things that were just open. And I'm not going to get that um, on this side of heaven. Um, but in, in many ways, that process of saying goodbye um, actually helped me to trust God for that healing mm. instead of seeking it from my dad directly. Yeah, yeah. Well, Liz, uh, I appreciate so much your taking the time to talk with us. The book, once again, is titled God's Many Voices, Learning to Listen, Expectant to Hear. And if you want to hear the still small voice or perhaps the loud voice of God as he speaks to you, this is a great resource to help you with that. Thank you so much, Liz. Thanks, Georgine. News and traffic up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you back with us. By the way, we have a family four-pack of tickets to the Portland Pickles, the men's baseball team, and we want to give away our third 
family four-pack of tickets. And this is good, by the way, for any home game in the 2018 season. So eh, this is your opportunity uh, to enjoy a little time watching baseball. We're going to give that away to the second caller and the number to call 503-786-9390. That's 503-786-9390. Again, we're giving away a family four-pack of tickets to the Portland Pickles. They uh, play at Walker Stadium. That's at Portland's Lentz Park. Good for any home game in the 2018 season. So if you're bored and you're all sitting around, you're going to have this family four-pack of tickets. It's like, yes, we're going to go to the Portland Pickles game. So caller number two. Well, the National Transportation Safety Board is looking into a lack of training and oversight in the uh, deadly Amtrak crash in DuPont, Washington in December. Um, The uh, engineer of the Amtrak train, apparently that derailed at that time, had no experience operating the train's new charger locomotive, according to federal officials, at a Tuesday investigative hearing into the crash. Now, One could speculate why that might be the case, but it is a bit disturbing. It was December 18th, 2017. An Amtrak engineer making his first solo trip over a new route had only 60 seconds to orient himself to the controls of the brand new locomotive before pulling his train out of Seattle's King Street Station. On board were 77 passengers, six railroad employees for a total of 83 souls. Then, as the train was about to cross over I-5 near the town of DuPont, Amtrak train number 501 flew off the tracks, hitting a curve at more than twice the speed limit. When everything stopped moving, three passengers were dead, 62 were injured. An additional eight people traveling on I-5 were hurt by falling passenger cars and large trains parts from the trestle. Well, this Tuesday was the first of a two-day hearing in Washington, D.C., conducted by the National Transportation Safety Board. The NTSB is attempting to find out the root cause or causes of that accident so it never happens again. Well, the board's also investigating a second fatal crash in Casey, South Carolina, that happened in February of this year. Two members of the train crew were killed and 116 others injured as Antrax's Silver Star slammed into a parked freight train. A parked freight train. Well, these are just the most recent fatal accidents involving Amtrak, and the NTSB is uh, taking a broad look at passenger rail safety and what can be done to make it safer. On day two, the um, board will hear from experts on how rail safety on American railroads compare to other industries and other nations. Statistically, flying is far safer than taking a train. Now, you would think the opposite true, but there you have it. Well, all, uh, we've all been there to witness the physics and the devastation and the destruction, says one board chairman, Robert Sumwalt, citing other Amtrak crashes involving trains entering tight curves at high speeds. Washington's accident occurred during an inaugural trip over a new route designed to save time by shortening the trip to Portland and bypassing downtown Tacoma, which is often congested with freight train traffic. On paper, it seemed the bypass would be Uh, would have been thoroughly vetted. The new route was considered an upgrade of the existing freight line running along the west side of I-5 past Joint Base Lewis-McChord. Sound Transit, they own the line. They had oversight over the line's safety and security. The line received new track and roadbed. The speed limit on straighter sections was increased to 79 miles an hour. That's nine miles per hour faster than you can drive. But the curve at the scene of the wreck at milepost um, 19.8 Uh, wasn't singled out as particularly risky, other than the posting of speed limit signs lowered to 30 miles per hour. Well, Amtrak number 501 hit the curve just at 78 miles per hour. In this case, the curve was problematic, the board member Earl Weiner said. Who had the responsibility to point out or determine or take the first crack at 80 miles per hour into a 30 mile per hour curve? 
This question was followed by a long silence from a panel of agencies, including Sound Transit, Amtrak, the Federal Railroad Administration, and the Washington State Department of Transportation, which also helps fund and plan the region's passenger train travel. That's what I was afraid of, Mr. Weiner said, again, a member of the, uh, the board. Um, That was followed by more silence. So nobody's responsible for the mitigation, the potential mitigation of that curve being as problematic as it turned out to be. Well, finally, the Washington State Department of Transportation's Ronald Pate, director of the agency's rails, freight and ports division, spoke up, citing the fact that the curve was studied and signed off by an engineering firm which oversaw the upgrade to the line. But crew training or lack of it was also a major area for questioning. Amtrak's uh, Mike DiCatalbo, uh, noting the federal, uh, federally owned railroad company, is upgrading its uh, training uh, to include at least four orientation trips behind the controls for engineers new on the line. The 55-year-old engineer to, uh, of Train 501 was qualified with just two round trips. Citing interviews with the engineer, um, the NTSB chairman says that the engineer was well aware of the curve but somehow missed the black and yellow warning sign two miles ahead of the curve, warning that a slow uh, zone was coming up. As for the 60 seconds in the uh, cab of the brand-new Siemens Charger locomotive, Sumwalt asked Amtrak's representative, is that a normal expectation for an Amtrak engineer? That is not a normal expectation, DeKalb responded. Amtrak says while on the first run over new territory, a road foreman of engineers would normally be on board, but not this time. The only other person in the cab was the conductor taking an orientation ride, and all conversation was focused on the operation of the train. Well, even the lightweight articulated Talgo train sets uh, come under scrutiny. New rules adopted by the Federal Railroad Administration back in 99 call for tougher passenger car standards for North American passenger operations in the event of a high-speed accident. The European-designed cars didn't qualify, but... Uh, were grandfathered in after strengthening and other upgrades. Well, they're still trying to determine what happened and, more importantly, what should happen next. We'll keep you posted. Uh, But apparently um, the engineer in that case had had very little time uh, behind the controls of that particular train. In other news, President Trump uh, yesterday pardoned the father and son ranchers from Oregon whose imprisonment uh, for setting fires on federal land sparked a 41-day takeover of a wildfire refuge In the state, Trump signed the order granting clemency to 76-year-old Dwight Hammond and his son, Steve Hammond, 49. They were convicted of arson in 2012 for fires that burned on federal land in 2001 and 2006. And though they served their original sentences for the conviction, Dwight served three months, Stephen served one year. An appellate judge ruled in 2015 that the terms were too short under federal minimum sentencing laws, and the Hammonds were resentenced to serve the mandatory minimum. That decision led to the 2018 protests. The Hammonds are multi-generation cattle ranchers in Oregon imprisoned in connection with a fire that leaked onto to a small portion of neighboring public grazing land, the White House said in a statement. The evidence uh, at trial regarding the Hammonds' responsibility for the fire was conflicting, and the jury acquitted them on most of the charges. The statement added, justice is overdue for Dwight and Stephen Hammond, both of whom are entirely deserving of these grants of executive clemency. Dwight has uh, so far served about three years in prison, and Stephen has served about four years. They've also paid $400,000 to the United States to settle a related civil suit. Well, the um, uh, resentencing sparked a protest from Ammon Bundy and dozens of others who occupied the Malheur National Wildlife uh, Refuge, as you recall, near the Hammond Ranch in southeastern Oregon. 
January 2nd through February 11th of 2016. The armed occupiers changed the refuge's name to the um, Harney County Resource Center, reflecting their belief that the federal government has only a very limited right to own property within a state's borders. Well, during that standoff at the refuge, FBI agent Joseph uh, Astarida allegedly shot rancher Robert Lavoie Finicum when officers arrested leaders at the occupation. Um, one of the officers was later accused of falsely denying he fired two shots at Finicum or his truck and pleaded not guilty to three counts of making a false statement and two counts of obstruction of just, uh, justice. Rather, This is the latest in a series of uh, pardons. Back in April, the president pardoned Scooter Libby, the former aide to Vice President Dick Cheney, who was uh, ensnared in what was known as the Valerie Plame affair during the Bush administration. I don't uh, know Mr. Libby, the president said in a statement, but for years I have heard that he has been treated unfairly. Hopefully this full pardon will help rectify a very sad portion of his life. The president recently pardoned a former Navy sailor after he served a year in federal prison for taking photos of classified sections of his submarine. And in May, he pardoned conservative filmmaker Dinesh D'Souza, who was convicted of making an illegal campaign contribution in 2014. Back in June, he also granted clemency to Alice Marie Johnson, who was convicted in 96 on eight criminal counts related to a Memphis-based cocaine trafficking operation. Her involvement with cocaine dealers reportedly came about after she lost her job. Her son was killed. She got a divorce and her home was foreclosed on. Critics say the president could be ignoring valid claims for clemency as he works outside the typical pardon process, focusing on cases brought to his attention by friends, famous people and conservative media pundits. Aides say the president has been especially drawn to cases in which he believes the prosecution may have been politically motivated, a situation that may remind him of his own position at the center of an ongoing special counsel investigation into Russian election meddling. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk with Peter Sprigg. He's the Family Research Council senior fellow. We're going to talk about how the case decided by the U.S. Supreme Court, a decision in favor of free speech rights of California's pro-life pregnancy care centers, um, then it could possibly affect the sexual orientation change therapy prohibitions in some states, which is another free speech issue the Supreme Court has not yet addressed, but could. In fact, one of the just one of the uh, jurists uh, made reference to that decision uh, most recently. We'll get into that with Peter Sprigg in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Before we begin our next conversation, I want to warn listeners that this is going to be a very frank conversation about a subject that may not be appropriate for younger listeners. So this is a good time for you to uh, encourage them to go elsewhere as we're going to discuss an important issue uh, that is uh, not discussed very often for that very reason. The truth is the influence of pornography seems to be everywhere. It's in mainstream movies and music videos, television shows, many other forms of media, and the speed with which this has occurred can be traced to one culprit. According to my next guest, that is the Internet. It is omnipresent. It is it enables this kind of smut to go far beyond the pages of print magazines and straight to the screens on our phones, the things we hold in our hands. In fact, 30% of all data transferred across the Internet is pornography. 30%. And the pornography industry is one of the fastest growing industries in the world with a net worth of $97 billion, with the U.S. coming in at over $10 billion. Pornography sites get more visitors every month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. 
76% of 18 to 30-year-old American women report that they watch pornography at least once a month. And 3% of all women say they either thought they might be addicted or they're unsure if they are addicted to pornography. The truth is, more and more women are... Uh, finding themselves addicted to pornography. And I am grateful for my next guest, Patrina Mosley, who has published a paper on the subject, Women and Pornography, to put this into perspective and to let us know if there is some hope for those who believe they are addicted. Patrina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You know, it's disturbing to just outline uh, what you write about in your paper about the prevalence of pornography. But I think it's also uh, surprising to many that women are now um, being roped into this uh, this area of addiction as well. It it is. And we can no longer, I guess, identify pornography as just a men's issue. This is now uh, growing amongst the female population and for good reason. I mean, number one, it's just the pornification of our culture. As you mentioned, mm-hmm. it's everywhere in our, in our TV shows, our music, our movies. Pornography is pretty much everywhere, which is sexually explicit images. So this is not just someone who is buying a Playboy magazine or, or slipping in a video from their local adult entertainment shop. This is in the everyday things that we consume that have just become a part of our culture. And so it's no surprise that this is now becoming mainstream for women. And for them in their minds, they're thinking, well, this is something that is sexually liberating me because now I know how I should express my sexuality, number one. Or I know what guys are looking for. So it it starts to retrain a woman's mind to think this is what is sexy. This is how I should be treated. Uh, and this is what I should desire in a romantic sexual relationship. And it's very, very dangerous. Um, also, the lure of erotica material through books such as Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, Georgina, that has been the gate door right mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, erotica material. We've been seeing that for decades now. And, of course, with the explosion of the Internet, uh, pornography has gone to a whole nother level. When you start having material that's, that's specifically crafted to lure a woman in through a romantic plot line, telling her this is how a woman should be treated, this is romantic, this is good, the woman's brain automatically gets reprogrammed to think that this is okay for me to pursue, that this is healthy sexual development. And so the only next logical sequence after that is something that is visual. So you go from reading something in print to something that is visual, and Fifty Shades of Grey made that possible uh, from going from the books to the movies. And they generated over $1.3 billion alone from the whole series. Um, It is is a money-making business that is destroying lives. Um, and particularly for women now, and it's something that we need to discuss. Yeah, I want to talk about the impact that this has, but I also want to cite one of the statistics that you uh, cite in your paper. According to one study, 15% of Christian women view pornography Mm -hmm. at least once a month, which is about one half of the national average. So we're not just talking about secular women. We're talking about followers of Christ who are also struggling in this area. Now, talk about uh, the impact that pornography has on the brain, because many, uh, particularly young women, believe this is perfectly acceptable and uh, there is no harm to it at all. Well, it's so funny, Georgina, um, that what the scripture says, run, flee from sexual immorality and sexual temptation. Um, Even 
and uh, and one book it talks about how uh, when you you should run from sexual immorality because no other sin impacts a body like this one. And the scriptures are so true, and we're seeing that with scientific technology today. The impact that brain is that that pornography is having on the brain is that it is re- rewiring the transmitters in your reward center. Okay, so the reward center is the place where it tells you that you're hungry, go eat something. And when you eat something, it feels good to fill your belly. Okay, that's an example. Or to sleep. When you get that sleep, you feel good. You feel rested. You're rewarding yourself. There's an area of the brain called the reward center that controls that. The same is with sex. All these things are natural functions that are built into the human body for our pleasure and for God's glory. But when we don't use those things to God's glory, then we will see the the harmful consequences of that. And so the brain doesn't know that you are giving it a false reward by looking at sexually explicit images and getting stimulated. That feeling is supposed to happen in a relationship with a male-female presence physically. When you're watching pornography, you're getting that simulation visually. And so you're having to satisfy that simulation with harder and harder material because it feels so good in the brain. Now, your brain doesn't know you know, the neurons that doesn't know this isn't natural, this is this is not the way it's supposed to be, but it's intaking it anyway. And so it rewires the brain to want more pornography and to acquire more and more hardcore pornography because you're not satisfied the more you obtain. Um, it's just like giving a, a, a kid a taste of candy for the first time. You know, when you have a baby and you give it a taste of sugar and candy for the first time, they go nuts. They love it, and they want more and more and more. So they're no longer satisfied with just a little bit of sugar on your finger. They want a popsicle. They want a whole candy bar. They want a whole milkshake and so forth and so on. And that's the dangers of pornography, that it is a, a pit that will keep you longer than you want to stay and longer than you intended. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's definitely a pitfall. You also write about the uh, decreased sexual satisfaction, the lower self-esteem, and the increased female sexual victimization. You cite a study of 14 to 19-year-olds uh, that found that females who watched pornographic videos were at significantly greater likelihood of being victims of sexual harassment or sexual assault, that it clearly plays a role in shaping how we think women should be treated. So it has uh, implications exactly. uh, in terms of, of what our expectations are. Exactly. And once again, another output of how it impacts the brain. Not only does it impact the brain neurologically, but it impacts the brain and how you think you should be treated psychologically. So you think it's okay. As, as I just want to point out one stat that would make the rest of this make sense is that 88% of pornographic scenes are violent. Okay. It involves a lot of slapping, um, a physical domination of a male. And, and other things that I won't go into here, but you can find that in the, in the pamphlet. Um, so it trains the mind psychologically to think that I'm supposed to be treated this way. This is okay to be treated this way by a male. It's sexy. It's good. So it, it reprograms the brain psychologically to think what's acceptable behavior from a male-female relationship point of view. Mm. You also um, emphasize the abuse of women who are actually working as pornographic performers and that we're exploiting those women by taking advantage of the images that, that we have so readily available today. 
Oh, my goodness, yes. And a lot of people do not know that pornography now is so pervasive that it can literally be, be made in someone's bedroom. Uh, Playboy magazine has decided to shut down their center nude folds, uh, folds they would have in their magazines because they realized it wasn't making any money and people can just get nude images on the Internet. Why? Because people are making it for free in their homes. Um, there is one case where a father reportedly filmed his his raping of his own daughter and posted it on a pornography site for the world to view. And people who are clicking on that, they have no idea that this was a child who was being raped by her own father. So every time you click on that image, you could be watching someone getting victimized over and over again. Um, and this is something that is not a secret when it comes to the, the point industry on the Internet. Um, Anybody can just film any of their exploitation and put it up. A lot of times sex traffickers would do that. They will take uh, their victims into uh, these homes and they would get the money. And they say, you know what, I can make more money if I not, not only take money from the act, but I put the act up online and have people watch it and subscribe to my material. So they're trying to think of ways to get more money. Um, so you, you don't even know when you're clicking on these things that you could be watching sex trafficking, therefore creating the demand for more sex trafficking. Mm. Not to mention the uh, the connection with abortion. One of the things I appreciate about your report is that you offer help and resources. My guess is just by the sheer volume of listeners, there are women listening today who uh, frequent pornographic sites and those in particular who are believers recognize that this is something that may have a hold on them. You offer help and resources. In our closing moments, give us some hope that uh, one can find freedom uh, from this addiction. Yes, there is hope and there is healing. The great thing about the brain is that it can be rewired. A lot of this information, it is hard to intake, and it may sound hopeless, but it's not. God designed the brain to to be... Um, to be reshaped and to be reformed. And so there is help for that, and it's helpful the heart as well. Um, some great resources that we provide in the back is from Covenant Eyes. They have been a, a leader in providing accountability for uh, pornography uh, filtering software on your computers, and also just practical counseling resources for men and for women who have been addicted to pornography or if you think you're addicted to pornography. Um, those resources are listed there. Also, beggarsdaughter.com. Um, a former porn addict herself talks about her experiences and how she got free. And so it's a great place to see someone else who may be where you're at and to see how they've gotten free and to uh, find that hope for yourself as well. Well, I thank you so much for the work that you've done in putting this piece together and bringing this uh, to our attention, and particularly because so many young women, and uh, I'm talking about very young girls, uh, find no problem with pornography at all. And whether or not we as individuals are struggling in this area, we need to be prepared to minister to those who are younger and may, in fact, um, be struggling with this. So I thank you for the work that you've done, and we're going to put a link to the uh, to the piece on the Facebook page and uh, hope that lots of people will uh, avail themselves of this great resource. All right. Thank you, Georgina. Thank you, Petrina. Bye-bye. Again, Petrina Mosley is the Family Research Council Director of Life, Culture, and Women's Advocacy. She's written a piece on women and pornography, um, which was generally thought to be a male problem, but increasingly more and more women are struggling and, in fact, younger 
uh, women and girls uh, are exposed to and uh, are often addicted to it much sooner than one might anticipate as well. There'll be a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. My next guest, Family Research Council Senior Fellow Peter Sprigg, has a great new blog post, and he discusses how the U.S. Supreme Court's recent decision in favor of the free speech rights of California's pro-life pregnancy care centers, NIFLA versus Becerra, could possibly affect sexual orientation change efforts uh, in therapy, another free speech issue the Supreme Court has not yet addressed. Um, there are free speech implications for therapists and patients seeking to change their sexual orientation. And this is an issue that might uh, the the Becerra decision might uh, tell us something about what a Supreme Court, as it's currently constructed and with a new member, uh, might have to say about this kind of prohibition in several states across the country. Peter Sprigg, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Georgine, for having me. This is such an interesting um, connection because as I uh, talked about and studied the uh, NIFLA uh, versus Becerra decision, I didn't make the connection between the free speech implications that we might also see if the question of these prohibitions uh, for therapy um, might um, have some consistent thread. Explain for us, even though these are very different uh, kinds of um, decisions or kinds of questions, there are some similar uh, outcomes possible. Right. Well, in, uh, of course, we're dealing with laws, uh, two laws that were passed in California on different subjects. Um, and the Supreme Court's uh, decision in NIFLA struck down a law that would require pregnancy, pro-life pregnancy resource centers to post particular notices with, with language prescribed by the government, including uh, licensed, um, uh, licensed pregnancy centers would have had to basically advertise where people could get abortions. Which is essentially, which is contrary to the whole purpose of such pregnancy centers, which is to discourage abortion. Um, so um, the Supreme Court ruled, and, and Justice Thomas wrote the majority opinion. They ruled that that was a uh, violation of the First Amendment of the free speech provisions of the First Amendment, specifically that that constituted a form of compelled speech, which is also considered um, not permissible under the Constitution. But in the course of that decision, um, he, he mentioned the, the problem he had with the lower courts was that they said, well, this is professional speech, and the government can regulate this because it's professional speech. And he pointed out that there have been a number of lower courts that have adopted this idea that somehow quote-unquote professional speech doesn't get the same protection from the First Amendment that other forms of speech does. But he completely rejected that and said the Supreme Court, well, lower courts have said that the Supreme Court has never said that. And among the lower courts that he rebuked for saying that was the Ninth Circuit in the case of Pickup versus Brown. Uh, David Pickup is an ex-gay and an ex-gay therapist who sued when California passed their original therapy ban back at the first of these bans back in 2012. And um, his lawsuit was unsuccessful because the Ninth Circuit said, oh, this is professional speech. And now, um, in, in his case, they were the, the argument that he was making, that uh, his attorneys were making, was that his speech was being silenced, that he was not allowed to talk to his clients about changing their sexual orientation. It's a little different from the compelled speech in the pregnancy center case. 
But still, the fact that Justice Thomas explicitly cited that decision in a negative way and, and said this represents a viewpoint that we as the Supreme Court have rejected, um, that, that suggests to me that if one of these cases comes to, eventually comes to the Supreme Court, they, there is a very good ch- chance that they would strike down these therapy bans as being unconstitutional. Well, and that's encouraging for those of us who believe in free speech and the freedom of an individual who chooses to seek that kind of help to be able to to find it. How likely is it, given the status in California and in other places where this question is, has been addressed, how likely is it that there will be a challenge that would ultimately uh, result in a Supreme Court review? I think it's very likely that eventually there will <clears throat> There will be a challenge. I'm not sure exactly where it will come. There were court challenges to the California bill, which was the first one passed, and to the New Jersey law, which was, I believe, the second one of this nature passed. And both of those um, court challenges were unsuccessful. However, this Supreme Court decision um, creates a whole different sort of legal climate. Now, I believe I may have read that uh, Liberty Council the uh, Christian Legal Advocacy Group is actually asking the courts to revisit their original case. I think they represented David Pickup in that original case. So they may try to do it directly with respect to that case that's already been decided. But since California and New Jersey passed their laws, there have been, I believe it's 12 more states um, that have passed similar laws, as well as a number of municipalities. And so any one of them uh, could potentially... uh, be, be uh, you know, something that could be challenged in court. Speaking of the court, uh, as you know, the Fuhrer uh, began before a name was actually mentioned, but the president announced earlier this week that he has chosen uh, Brett Kavanaugh to be his uh, next Supreme Court nominee. Your thoughts on this individual as a uh, Supreme Court justice, and what do you think the prospects are that he will be confirmed? Well, um, certainly uh, Judge Kavanaugh is uh, considered to have a a strong uh, originalist uh, uh, judicial philosophy of of believing that the law and the Constitution should be interpreted as it was originally understood when it was adopted. And uh, and that is encouraging for us on most of the issues that we care about. Um, You know, there had been the people who, who do the fine-grained studying of some of the previous decisions have uh, a, a few doubts about uh, the way that uh, that Justice K- uh, Judge Kavanaugh has decided some cases. But in general, um, he uh, you know he was on the list that President Trump promised to pick from, and I think uh, generally he is well respected, and um, and uh, we certainly think there's no. Uh, good reason for uh, him to be denied confirmation uh, as as a Supreme Court justice. Well, we'll all certainly watch uh, with great interest what happens uh, what happens next. I so appreciate the work that you do and uh, appreciate your taking the time to talk with us here today. Well, thank you, Georgine, and it was great to see you at the Restored Hope Network conference yes. a few weeks ago. And uh, um, and so I uh, appreciate your commitment to this. Um, cause of uh, of sexual orientation change and the freedom of people to seek that if that's what they want. Absolutely. Hey, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Take care. Again, Bye. Peter Sprigg is the Family Research Council Senior Fellow, uh, making a comparison between the fundamental core issue of uh, free speech in the Nifla Becerra case and the laws that have been passed that have prohibited um, the professional speech of uh, 
for of therapists for those who are seeking help uh, with unwanted same-sex attraction. So uh, we're going to continue to follow that with great interest. Up next, we're going to talk with Petrina Mosley. She's the Family Research Council Director of Life, Culture, and Women's Advocacy. We're going to talk about a very sober subject that is inappropriate for some of our younger listeners. So if you are a parent or grandparent and you have young people nearby, I would encourage you to uh, otherwise occupy them. We're going to talk about the addiction that many women are now experiencing to pornography. And while this has been a subject for many years that was thought to be primarily an affliction that men suffered from, um, there's a different gateway to pornography for women. And the numbers are uh, increasing even within the, the community of Christian women. So we're going to talk with Petrina Mosley about that. She's written a paper on the subject, and I put a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page where you can read those statistics um, uh, more specifically. And I would, and she concludes the article with a number of resources that I think will be very helpful to the church. So I'm hoping that those who are involved in leadership in particular or individuals who may be struggling in this area um, will avail themselves of the uh, the paper uh, to seek help. And for those in uh, in leadership, women's Bible studies or, you know, whatever the role might be, there's some good resources that are also a part of this paper. And again, Petrina Mosley will be joining us in just a moment. Uh, also in the latter part of the show, the final segment, we're going to talk about a new study that uh, outlines what they're describing as a mass exodus from the church. And that, of course, has not only national implications, but much broader and more significant implications to the lives of those uh, who are rejecting faith, translated Jesus. So we'll get into that before the show ends. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Michael Snyder recently published a piece on uh, uh, mass exodus from the church of young people. The percentage of young adults with no religious affiliation is nearly quadrupled since 1986. The headline uh, declares, with each passing year, the percentage of Americans that claim no religious affiliation is growing, and this trend is especially pronounced among our young people. Now, one could interpret uh, the, the notion that there's no uh, religious affiliation in a variety of ways, but I'll present it as the article does, and you can draw your own conclusions. But it does beg the question, are we engaged in evangelism and are we effective in talking with young people about our faith? Uh, we're witnessing a religious shift that's unprecedented in size and scope in American history, he points out. With each passing year, the percentage of Americans that claim no religious affiliation is growing, and this trend is especially pronounced among our young people. If things continue to steadily move in this direction, that's going to have enormous implications for the future of our society, not to mention the church. The United States was founded by people that were extremely committed to their faith, and now we are rapidly becoming a nation where people are choosing no religion at all. Now, again, we could quibble over religion versus relationship, but let's just see what the study has to say. We live at a time when there is a mass exodus from Christian churches, and while it is true that some smaller faiths are growing, the reality of the matter is that most of our people, most of the people that are leaving are remaining unaffiliated. According to PRRI, if you go back to 1991, only 6% of all Americans were unaffiliated, but today that number has shot up to 25%. In 1991, 6% of Americans identified their religious affiliation as none, and that number has not moved much since the early 70s. By the end of 1990s, 14% of the public claimed no religious affiliation. The rate of religious change accelerated further during the 2000s and early 2010s, reaching 20% by 2012. Today, one quarter, 25% of Americans claim no formal religious identity, making this group the single largest religious group in the U.S. That's religious in quotes. 
The most dramatic change during this time period has been among our young people. If you go all the way back to 1986, just 10% of Americans in the 18 to 29-year-old age group were unaffiliated. Today, that number has skyrocketed to 39%. And here's more. Today, nearly 4 in 10, or 39% of young adults, 18 to 29, are religiously unaffiliated. That's three times the unaffiliated rate at 13% among seniors ages 65 and older. And while previous generations were also more likely to be religiously unaffiliated in their 20s, young adults today are nearly four times as likely as young adults a generation ago to identify as religiously unaffiliated. In 1986, for example, only 10% of young adults claimed no religious affiliation. And again, we could quibble, uh, quibble over the a notion of religious affiliation as opposed to relationship and not associated with the denomination. But I think just the the point that's being made here is one worthy of consideration. Just because millennials claim a religious affiliation of some sort does not mean that they actually go to church. In fact, the study from the Pew Research Center discovered that only 27 percent of millennials say that they attend religious services on a weekly basis. Millennials, especially the youngest among them who have entered adulthood since the first landscape study was conducted, are far less religious than their elders. For example, only 27% of millennials say they attend religious services on a weekly basis compared with 51% of adults in the silent generation. Four in 10 of youngest uh, of the youngest millennials say they pray every day compared with six in 10 baby boomers and two thirds of members of the silent generation. And don't, uh, no, I don't know what the silent generation represents here. Only about half of millennials say they believe in God with absolute certainty, compared with seven in 10 Americans in the silent and baby boom cohorts. And only about four in 10 millennials say religion is very important in their lives, compared with more than half in the older generational cohorts. Of course, not all of those that are attending religious services are going to Christian churches. Some are going to mosques, others are attending synagogue, and yet others are involved in other faiths. At one time, you could count on fast-growing groups such as the Southern Baptists and Mormons to produce positive growth numbers, but those days are long gone. The Southern Baptists have lost more than a million members over the last decade, according to Lifeway. Giving and attendance are down, and Baptists are seeing more gray and silver heads in the pews. Meanwhile, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has seen its uh, once enviable U.S. growth rate slow to under 1% in each of the last two years. Mormonism, which grew by just uh, 0.75% in the country in 2017, is barely keeping pace with the growing of the U.S. population. Europe has been described as a post-Christian society, and we are well on our way to joining them. So what's causing this to happen? Well, there is certainly a lot of debate about uh, that within the Christian community. From the outside, many experts are pointing to demographic changes. Uh, One of the biggest demographic trends of our time is that millennials are delaying marriage and not uh, getting married at all. And since there's a strong correlation between being married and being involved in uh, one's faith, the fact that fewer Americans are getting married is worrisome news to clergy. In addition to a decline in marriage numbers, experts also point to the fact that Americans are having fewer children. The number of children a family has is related to the couple's religious involvement. Couples without children are a bit less likely to be religious, although it's not, you know, absolute. So the fact that fertility is on the decline, again, worrisome news for organized religion. But are those factors a cause of the decline of religious faith in America, or are they the result of it? It could be argued that churches have always heavily promoted marriage and family, and if young Americans are no longer engaged in church, it would make sense that they put less of a priority on those things now.
Well, the good news for churches is that even though atheism is rapidly growing, most Americans, even the unaffiliated ones, still believe in God. Despite their lack of connection to formal religious institutions, most unaffiliated Americans retain a belief in God or a higher power. A majority of unaffiliated Americans say God is either a person with whom people can have a relationship or an impersonal force. That's 22 percent with relationship and 37 percent the impersonal force. Only one third or 33 percent of religiously unaffiliated Americans say they do not believe in God. Strong majorities who belong to the major Christian religious traditions hold a personal concept or conception of God compared to Christians. Americans who identify with the non-Christian tradition are significantly less likely to hold a personal conception of God and are more likely to say God is an impersonal force in the universe at about 49 percent. Well, Americans still have a keen interest in spiritual things, but many of them are now attempting to fill that void in alternative ways. For example, it has been claimed that Wicca, a very popular form of witchcraft, is now the fastest growing faith, in quotes, in America. Many like to focus on the political changes that are happening in this country, but the truth is that these cataclysmic shifts in our faith numbers are going to have far more to do with determining the future course of the nation. If we ever hope to restore the constitutional republic that our founders once established, we must return to the Christian values and principles that this nation was originally founded upon. Beyond that temporal concern, there are the souls and the eternal consequence of turning one's back on or uh, declining to the invitation to know the God who created us. That is the challenge that we face as the church. And the question is whether or not we're serious about the tremendous privilege that we have been given to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those with whom we come in contact, or if we would rather remain safe and secure and be well-liked because we don't bring up religion. It's uh, not polite in mixed company. So there you have it, some of the challenges that we face as believers. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Ken Ham. His book is titled Gospel Reset, Salvation Made Relevant. It's a book published by Master Books that's within his organization. We'll talk about why the gospel needs a reset and what he means by that, as well as why salvation needs to be made relevant. Are we just failing to share our faith in an effective way? Uh, are our testimonies fractured? What is the problem? We'll talk with Ken Ham about that tomorrow. I want to thank James Blind for engineering and producing today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.